Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are reactions from the start of the NBA playoffs, including the biggest surprises and disappointments, plus a preview of the second round of the NHL playoffs with a very special guest. And is the pitching dominance in the MLB a good thing or a bad thing? It's episode 25 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Thursday, May 27th, 2021. We're a quarter of a way to 100 people. Episode 25 of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for tuning in. Obviously, we were off last week. A couple of little things. I had my second COVID vaccine dose, and the effects did hit me. Not not hard, but it definitely took a little bit of the energy away from me. But it was gone by the nighttime, so we're all good there. And then this past weekend, I actually took a trip down to Warwick, Rhode Island to go to a little wedding. And I want to shout out my cousin, Megan Landrosh, who's now Megan Girardi, and her beautiful husband, Ben, had an absolute blast at that wedding. So that was the reason we were off last week, but we're back this week, and of course, we got to dive right into the playoffs. No more time to waste because it's the most exciting time for any sport. It's postseason play. So in the NBA, we've got pretty much every series is two games deep now. Got a couple of game threes kicking off tonight with the Bucks and the Heat, the Suns and the Lakers, and the Nuggets and the Trailblazers. And we'll break this down series by series and talk about What's been surprising? What's been disappointing so far looking at the NBA postseason? And the first one that stands out to me and maybe the basketball community has to be the Mavericks taking a series lead over the Clippers. I mean, they've taken away home court from L.A. and have a 2 nothing series lead heading into Friday night's Game 3 in Dallas. I mean, I was I talked a couple weeks ago about how the Mavericks could be a big dark horse in the postseason just because of Luka Doncic playing out of his mind and creating some of that magic. And boy, was I right on the mark with that one. But really just looking at the first two games in L.A. between these two, I mean, first off, you have to talk about the Clippers not shooting the three-pointers as well. I mean, game one, they shot 27 and a half from three-point land, 27.5%. And then in game two, they shot almost 39.5%. So the three ball is not working. But the biggest thing I see is that the supporting cast for Dallas, to me, is playing much more better than the Clippers' supporting cast. I mean, look at what some of their guys are doing. It's Tim Hardaway Jr. is the biggest one for me. He's been a pleasant surprise here if you're a Dallas fan. I mean, game one, 21 points, 
5 of 9 from 3. And then in game 2, 28.6 of 8 from 3. And I think he is that ultimate X factor for Dallas if they want to make a postseason run. If he's shooting like this, this team can go a long way. But then you've also got, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Kristaps Porzingis. When he's healthy, he is a great second option for this Dallas team. And then Dorian Finney-Smith, he's very underrated. People sleep on him a little bit. And then obviously the supporting cast, Jalen Brunson off the bench. They have a great cast of players to surround Luka Doncic. But when just looking on the game, looking at the first two games, the biggest thing to me for LA is defensively. Defensively, when you look at when Dallas runs their offense, the Clippers are basically switching everything. They switch everything on the pick and roll, which is giving Doncic plenty of space for these mismatches. He's getting mismatches on Zubats, and he's getting them on Marcus Morris Sr., and he's getting all these isolation plays, and it really just opens up the floor for Luka to go into an isolation, drive it, maybe kick it out to a Tim Hardaway Jr. or Porzingis or a Finney Smith, stuff like that. So the Clippers have to sure up defensively and maybe go for something better on defensively rather than just switch everything. You know, maybe keep Kawhi Leonard on Doncic at all times. Maybe give him a double team when he's starting to drive. But then again, his step back is just so lethal that it's probably the best in the game. I'd rival that with James Harden step back. Luka probably has a better step back. But then the second thing I would say, obviously talking about the supporting cast for the Clippers, is just offensively, it can't be all about Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Because, I mean, we saw in game one, Leonard and George didn't have great games. I think it was 28 for Leonard and 23 for George. And then, obviously, they took on a bigger load in game two, Kawhi scoring 41 and Paul George scoring 28. I mean, they can only do so much. And I think Marcus Morris, I talked about him briefly, Marcus Morris Sr. is going to have to score a lot more. He's going to have to score a lot more because I believe there were only like two or three guys in game two for the Clippers that scored in double figures. And Morris has shown himself to be great on offense. He was very valuable for this Clippers team, and he's very good when he's on his game. The second player, I'd say Serge Ibaka. I think he's got to improve defensively. Remember, this is a Clippers team that kind of lacks in height. I mean, Zubats is basically their center. But then when they go to the bench and they start playing small ball with Serge Ibaka, Ibaka's only 6'9". So if you give the Mavericks an inside game, there's not a really big rim protector that can help it out. So Ibaka's going to have to assume that role defensively. And then finally... Where's playoff Rondo? Where's playoff Rajon Rondo? We saw what he could do in the bubble with the Lakers. You're telling me he can't do it for the other LA team? He's going to have to play a lot better. I know he scored about 11 points in game one, but he has to be a playmaker. He has to make plays off of the bench for that second unit and just get the energy going for that LA team. But overall, I would say Dallas has put themselves in a great spot because, as I said, they took the home court back, and I do not think they're a fluke. I think they can win this series. I think I do expect the Clippers to make it a little more competitive, but I just think they've fallen in a hole early. 
2-0. It's the same old story for this Clippers team. Even when they change coaches and change players, they just can't take that extra step into championship contention. So it's just same old stories for the Clippers, and Mavericks are playing phenomenal. Now, another surprise, I would say, in another Western Conference series are the Phoenix Suns. I mean, the Suns, remember, this is the first time they made the playoffs in about 10 or 11 years. I want to say 2010 was the last time they made it. And this is a fairly young team. I mean, you have a couple of veterans like Dario Saric, CP3, Jay Crowder. I mean, but really, Chris Paul would be like the only guy I would say is like has that true playoff experience. And I'd also throw out Jay Crowder. They have those are the two that really have the big playoff experience. But I just looking at the games where they're playing the Lakers, I don't see any kind of jitters. No playoff jitters for playoff debuts for DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker. That's really the biggest thing I see is that there's no jitters at all. DeAndre Ayton knows his role down low. 21 points, 16 rebounds in Game 1. 22 points, 10 rebounds in Game 2. But Devin Booker, I mean, in his first two career playoff games, he puts up 34 and 31 points respectively. I mean, talk about a guy who was built for the spotlight. I think Booker is one of those guys who absolutely loves this kind of attention. He lives for the playoff moments, and I think he's he's going to be a star in, a, in any kind of postseason run that Phoenix goes on. Now, the series is tied one-to-one, and the biggest key that I am seeing is the rebounding battle because... Both of these teams, the Suns and the Lakers, have probably the top five rebounders in the game right now. In the aforementioned DeAndre Ayton and Andre Drummond. They're both top five when it comes to big men inside. And we've seen in the past that whoever wins the rebounding battle is going to win that game. Phoenix obviously won it in game one. LA did it in game two. And I think whoever has that advantage is going to win the series. That's going to be the biggest thing is Andre Drummond is going to have to take away Aiton from rebounding, and he's going to have to out-rebound him. That is going to be the biggest thing because there is a reason that the Lakers picked up Drummond in the buyout market, and that's to go on a postseason run no matter if you're the seventh seed playing against the number two seed. The other thing is that LeBron James needs to stop being such a drama queen. I understand that he's old and like he's 36. He's getting poked in the eye and his shoulder was almost pulled out of its socket by Chris Paul. But come on, you're LeBron effing James. You're still the greatest basketball player in the game today. In the game today. And someone could flick you on the wrist. And you would go down like you just died. I mean, LeBron just has to put his head down and be LeBron James instead of being a drama queen and, you know, doing these things to try and get like a flagrant foul, get him at the free throw line or something like that. I understand it's a strategy and it's all about flopping and stuff like that just to get calls, but LeBron James is LeBron James. He has to be himself and get to the basket and take over games. Him and Anthony Davis can do that. We've seen it literally a year ago. 
that they can do that. And for Phoenix, I think they can have a big advantage in this series, but only if Chris Paul improves. Okay, Chris Paul has to be a much bigger factor than what he's been so far. Listen to these stats for the first two games. Game one, seven points, eight assists. In game two, six points, five assists. Okay, Chris Paul is going to have to do more. He's going to have to be a playmaker for this Phoenix team. Because there is no doubt in my mind, the Suns do not make the playoffs if they do not have Chris Paul as their starting point guard. Absolutely not. He needs to be much more of a playmaker. He's going to have to put up double digits in assists. Double digits. And he's going to have to get double digits in scoring. Because we know what the Lakers are going to do. They're going to shut down Booker and his outside shooting. They're going to try and take away DeAndre Ayton. So that's going to open the space for the floor general Chris Paul to just take over and be Chris Paul that we all know about. Be the Chris Paul that we all know about. Now, just briefly, I have one more series I really want to dive into, but just a couple of small notes on the other series. Philadelphia, 2-0 over Washington. Not surprising there. I expected Philly to go through, but just their fans are absolutely horrible. I, I do not like Philadelphia fans at all, regardless, after seeing what they did to Russell Westbrook. The guy has a hurt ankle, and they dump popcorn on him. An absolute disgrace. Absolute disgrace. In the Brooklyn-Boston series, we'll get to Boston in a little bit, but Brooklyn, maybe they have four or five good guys. I still need to see more from maybe Nick Claxton, a little more of an impact from Blake Griffin, possibly just a couple more guys. But Brooklyn looks good so far in their first two games. Milwaukee and Miami. I am a little disappointed in Miami. I thought they make it a much more competitive series with the Bucks because you've got a great guy in Bam Adebayo to defend Giannis. And, you know, Jimmy Butler and Iguodala and Dragic, all this experience from a year ago, and they're down to nothing, basically not in any game, I mean, credit game one did go to overtime, and it took a miraculous Chris Middleton shot to win the game for the Bucks. But still, Miami, I thought, would be a little bit more competitive than this. Because remember, this was the team that knocked out the Bucks last year. Definitely surprised to see that. Utah and Memphis, kind of a surprise that it's 1-1. One one, but, I mean, Memphis played absolutely great in their elimination game versus Golden State, taking advantage of all those turnovers. They can do that if Utah does the same thing, but... Utah's just a little bit too much. I think the Jazz will advance in that one. Denver and Portland, that is probably the most even series right now in the Western Conference. I think either team could come out with it. I think Portland might have a better supporting cast, but I think whoever wins Game 3 is going to win that series. I think that's going to be the way it looks for that series. And then finally, the last series I really want to dive deep into is the 4-5 matchup in the East between the Knicks and the Hawks. And oh my goodness, what a fun series this has turned out to be so far through two games. You know, I, I, before we get into it deeply, that fan who spit on Trey Young, an absolute disgrace. All right, fans, I, I understand they're back and they've missed it for a long time, but you seriously got to control yourselves, all right? New York, Philly, get your fans in check. And that's an order from little old me. But turning to the action on the court, 
I mean, game one was so much fun to watch. Just seeing these two teams going back and forth. And Trey Young hitting that game winner in game one. And basically becoming this villain, kind of. It's, it's kind of like a fun thing. It's just the Knicks being like, oh, you're too good. We need you to not be too good. That's really the biggest thing for New York. But Atlanta? I mean, their supporting cast, similar to the Clippers, is going to have to help out Trey Young because Trey Young is going to carry this team. But in game two, they didn't get any help from John Collins. He was held scoreless in game two. Scoreless. All right, you have great shooters in Gallinari and Bogdanovich and Herter. You got to get those guys on the board. And Clint Capella is probably going to have to expand his inside game. You know, maybe get more into the pick and roll with him and Trey Young because Trey Young is lethal not only from three but also driving to the basket. He's a great finisher, and that can open up the double teams which can allow Capella inside for some easy dunks and putbacks. But how about sweet Lou? Let's get Lou Williams on the court. He's made for stuff like this. Lou Williams needs some more minutes for that Hawks team. But they can't rely on threes, okay? Game two, 84 field goal attempts, 44 of them were three. That's more than half, okay? They cannot rely on the three-pointer as heavy as they did. But on the other side, for the Knicks, I mean... It's good to see guys like Alex Burks, Alec Burks and Derrick Rose putting up 27 and 26. But this offense just needs to play better, especially Julius Randle. This is a 25 and 10 guy, and he's barely putting up 15 in both of these games. He's going to have to play better. RJ Barrett, you kind of you kind of get it because this is his first playoff appearance in what I believe is his second year in the league, and just the offense has to get better. We know what Tom Thibodeau and this defense can do, but offensively, Julius Randle needs to play better, and the offense just needs to score more. They just need to score more. That's all it is for this Knicks team, but it is a very exciting NBA postseason so far. We'll have to keep our eyes glued to the TVs to see what happens during the rest of the first round. We just wrapped up talking about the NBA playoffs. We're going to dive into the NHL playoffs now. And for that, I'm going to need a very special guest to help me out on that one. Not promoting anything, not here for any kind of reason. Simply put, he's my future brother-in-law. Patrick Sullivan joins the show. Pat, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Joe. And I'm I'm here in effort for you. So I just want to make that clear right off the get-go. That's good. The podcast uh, I think it's great. So happy to uh, join you today. Yeah, I know. And you you kept clamoring to be on this. And I told you I'd get you on there. I'd get you on there. And I I finally got you on there. So I figured yeah, we no got to better... let the we got to let the listeners know the reason I am on here. I beat you on the golf course last Saturday. <laughs> you know, I had to play him just to get on the podcast. So for you know future guest speakers, I think the uh, the bar is set. You got to play Joey in golf to get on. Six stroke win. Just remember that six strokes, not that, not by much. It wasn't convincing, um, <laughs> but we're not talking about golf. We'll talk about the NHL and we'll just go series by series. We have a couple of second round matchups already set up, but 
Pat, we got to start with the series that's closest to home, the Bruins and the Caps. I mean, Bruins winning in five over the Capitals, 4-1. Was it kind of surprising to you that the series ended so quickly, or did you think it'd be a little more competitive than this? I thought it would go another game. I felt the Bruins were the better team. I just felt like the Capitals with, you know, the the postseason history have always had the Bruins number, and they've always had solid goaltending. So, you know, when you talk about the playoffs this year, um, you know, the Bruins really came out flying and, and had some high-scoring games, you know, right off the bat. But the Capitals play a heavy game. So, you know, realistically, I thought it was going to go probably six games, maybe. Maybe, maybe five. Yeah, obviously it ended, I think, four one so I thought it was going to go six but yeah they're a heavy team and they're extremely talented Um, they're extremely good on the power play so not getting penalties so I think the Bruins dodged uh, a bullet or at least were able to make it through a first tough tough first round matchup you know one of the better teams in the NHL of course Stanley Cup champion just a few years ago and I think really it was just the first line the second line that looked great to me as you said like they were great on the power play Bergeron, Martian, Pasternak all had, uh, I believe, three goals. And then Taylor Hall on that second line uh, looking great. And just the costly turnovers, just hurting the Capitals. That was the biggest thing that I saw, you know, especially during that double overtime win when uh, a goaltender, I think it was, uh, I forget, I forget who it was. But just yeah, the like new, dump- it's a rookie Russian goaltender. And obviously, you know, Craig Anderson had to come in, you know, he's 41 years old. I believe he played in only six games. Um, you know, so obviously he's untested. So if you're the Bruins with the injury to the goalie in, in game one, you got to kind of come out firing and you kind of caught a, a capitals team that didn't have strong goaltending, you know, like they've had in the past. So um, yeah. And, and I think if you really look back at this series, what's illustrated is, the deadline acquisitions made by the front office have been huge. You know, Taylor Hall has come in and instantly um, really picked up that second line, giving Krejci a good option, which has been great. But then even, um, you know, Riley's contributed, Lazar. Um, but if I was going to highlight somebody of significant importance in this past series and then also moving forward, you can't not discuss Charlie McAvoy. He's averaging close to 28 minutes 27 minutes a game, uh, which, you know, it's Ray Bork-esque with the way he's moving the puck. And, you know, he's great in the offensive zone, but he's also holding his own and hitting in the defensive zone for a a smaller body defenseman. But yeah, he's really fun to watch. Yeah, I definitely agree, McAvoy. This, this just, this team looks great from, from top to bottom, the Bruins right now, especially with the uh, next series that we'll talk about with the Islanders and the Penguins. The Bruins definitely look like the favorites because they look like they have it all together. They have a lot of great pieces on that first and second line. And then even the third and fourth line, they have some great pieces. And then obviously they have a great goaltender in Tuka Rass. So, I mean, many could argue that they're the favorites to win this upcoming series, um, which we'll get into a little bit, but we have to go to the other series in the Eastern division. And that was what I would call an upset. The number four Islanders, beating the top seeded Penguins in six games. I mean, would you call it an upset, the fact that the Penguins were uh, eliminated this early? Yeah, and obviously they, they made some acquisitions. They brought some some people in, but, you know, um, I think the Islander, Islanders, they play a very tough and very compact defensively oriented, you know, style of playing, which is, you know, it's it's sink or swim, right? If you're not scoring those goals, it's very tough to come back. So, 
I think what they do well is that they can get the lead and they can protect it. Um, and obviously they don't have the big stars compared to the Penguins, but I still think it's going to be a very tough challenge for the Bruins in this next upcoming series. And I think them getting through Pittsburgh, it just shows you how tough that division was between the Capitals, the Bruins, um, the Islanders and the Penguins. It was a gauntlet. Oh, I totally agree. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was that, you know, this team did lose Anders Lee, if you remember a couple of months ago. So you would have thought maybe that took the energy out of them. And, you know, they were contending top two, as you said, like going for a top seed. And then they fall to number four, having to face the Penguins, as you said, just shows how important this is. But going back to what you said about the um, Islanders, they were so defensively heavy, but they were scoring with uh, Pittsburgh. That was the big thing. Pittsburgh's great on offense, but they were hanging with them. I mean, you've got guys like Beauvillier and Bailey and Nelson and Palmieri. They all got three goals in that series. That's the biggest thing. And they took advantage of a Pittsburgh offense where, you know, Sidney Crosby especially just disappeared. I mean, this was a team that, you know, was one of the top teams in scoring. And here they are just barely mustering like two or three goals a game. You know, Crosby only putting up two points during the entire series while the Islanders were putting up like three and a half and outscoring them. Yeah, and I think there's some tough decisions for both the Penguins and the Capitals moving forward surrounding their stars, right? Where is Ovechkin going to stay? Is he going to sign a long-term ex, you know, extension or remain as a Capital uh, moving forward? And, and the same goes for Pittsburgh. I know people will find it tough, but, you know, Sidney Crosby, you know, it may be worth looking at potentially moving him. And I know that sounds outrageous for such a, you know, phenom player in the league for the last, you know, 15 years. Um, but especially with Malkin as well. Um, I think the one thing that you can notice, and I know we keep referring back to the Bruins is a lot of those guys that play on the Bruins, they take pay cuts to help the team out. And it kind of goes back to the whole Tom Brady esque in, in the NFL thing, but you know, whether it was Bergeron, Marshawn or Pasternak, you know, they're not playing for cheap, but they take team friendly deals for you know, longer terms to make sure that the Bruins can outfit themselves with the appropriate players. So um, when you look at these high level contracts, the high money deals between you know, Malkin and Crosby and some of that, it's going to be tough moving forward. Yeah. I mean, you got to have, yeah, you got to have guys like Taylor Hall who just today said like, I love Boston, you know, he'd stay at Boston, but in sticking with Boston, we'll now preview the second round, the number four Islanders, number three Bruins, Boston has the home ice, obviously having the higher seed as the number three over the number four. But what are your initial thoughts, Pat, you would say about this series when you first heard the Islanders beat the Penguins and they're going to be playing the Bruins in the second round? What were your initial thoughts? I think it's going to be a tough matchup. I think the Islanders play the Bruins very tough. And if you look at the season series, I think they went, you know, um, they play eight games. So I think it was three, three and two. So, you know, it, it, it's tough. And then not even that, the, the unique nature of the NHL this year is, is you play within your division. So you played the Islanders eight times already this year. And just like in any other, um, you know, sports series, once you play somebody once or twice, it becomes extremely challenging because they've become familiar with your systems and the way that you play and power plays and all that. So, um, I think it'll be interesting. And then I, I actually think the Islanders, Josh Bailey has had a really good series against um, Pittsburgh. I was able to watch a few of the games, but it's going to be interesting to see how the Bruins scoring, scoring lines up with the Islanders as a you know defensively oriented team. 
And if the Islanders can continue to put up three or four goals um, to keep themselves in the game with the high scoring, you know, Boston um, bench. Hey, you just took the words right out of my mouth. This is a great offense in Boston versus a great defense in New York. I think, you know, it's a flip of a coin. Obviously, I would say if I was like an odds maker in Vegas, I'd give the slight edge to the Bruins just because of the way they looked versus the Capitals. Um, but as you said, Islanders have had their number pretty much all year long. Like you said, they play, you know, so, so many times with the way the season was structured. Um, I think it's going to be very entertaining. I could definitely see it maybe going like six or seven games. Cause I think the Islanders are just that tough. Um, but I, I think the Bruins, you know, not to sound like a home or anything, but I think they just have more of the talent, more of the pieces to really put it together. They got a great goaltender in Rask. Um, I think the Bruins have the pieces and, and in the early stages, I would say the Bruins are the favorite in this series to come out of the East in that final four. And the key is rest too, because if you're setting yourself up for a long playoff run, um, you know, the NHL playoffs, it's a lot more physical, a lot faster. Um, so when you get into those later rounds, having that rest in between the first series and the second series is key. So I think whether it's the Bruins or the Islanders um, getting out of this series in five or six games um, where the still are having first and second round series games gives them an advantage, especially for you know individuals who are injured like Kevin Miller. Right. Yeah. That's going to be absolutely huge to, for both teams to get all their teams rested, but that'll be in the second round. That'll be a lot of fun. And now we and, move. And just a heads up, Joe, and I don't want to interrupt. I think the biggest odd odds makers had the Bruins at minus 200 to win the series. So a $200 bet wins you a hundred dollars um, for those from the gambling perspective. So I would say they're, they're pretty big um, favorites here, but I still think the Islanders, it's going to be tougher um, than what people imagine. Yeah. You can't sleep on this series. It's going to be a lot of fun. And now, we're shifting divisions, heading into the central division. We have one team who's already qualified, the Tampa Bay Lightning. They won their series in six with the Florida Panthers. And, Pat, just looking at this team, they look like, you know, they're the defending champs. They look on point. They have all their pieces, basically. And they just looked really good against the Panthers. What are your thoughts on the Lightning? Yes, and I and just uh, you mentioned uh, the – the central division. And I think that's a very unique division. Tampa is obviously great, but I think Carolina is playing very, very good hockey. Nashville was kind of the underdog um, coming in as the fourth seed. And I think they're still playing right now. I think game six is tonight, mm -hmm. but uh, one thing to note is, you know, um, Kucherov, who's been a huge factor for Tampa has had some time to come back off of an injury. And I think that Tampa Tampa Bay power play is very similar to the Washington Capitals um, where you throw five, five, four, or, you know, five players out on the ice and it's very tough. So I think Tampa either coming off playing a Carolina and Nashville will be an interesting because if you remember Tampa lost to Carolina um, and Carolina plays very similar to the Islanders um, very, you know, very hard, physical, tough defensive team. And I think they're rolling and, Joe, if you've seen the crowds for both the Carolina and Nashville series games, that those barns are absolutely rocking. So I think it makes for a very fun playoff atmosphere. So if you're a casual hockey fan who doesn't follow, um, you know, game by game, 
if you flip the TV on and find that game, it's, it's very fun to watch because the crowd's into it, the momentum's shifting back and forth, and it's an interesting series. And, you know, the same goes for Tampa Bay. I think that's a powerhouse down in South Florida. They just knocked off the Panthers. That was a great in-state rivalry that, you know, hasn't happened for, I think, what, 20, 20 plus years. So that central division is extremely unique. And I think obviously Tampa's the favorite. But I still think Carolina, Nashville, whoever comes out of that is going to play them tougher, um, you know, moving forward. But I, I really think Tampa is the, the leader in the clubhouse, per se, with that central division. Yeah, I, I think just, you know, when I when I looked at this roster, the way it was constructed, they have a great offense. They obviously have a great keeper in net. And this team just they're put together, as you said, on the power play. They're just really um they're really just well put together. That's that's what I see. Constant much of the Bruins. They got great goaltending. They're great on offense. But like you said, Carolina, they play them tough. I mean, they they won the top seed in that central division for a reason. And as you said, they still got their series with the Predators going on. They could close it out if they win in Nashville tonight at 930. But I think I think Tampa, they're kind of to me, they're one of these teams where it's like once it, it's just about getting to the playoffs, you know, not really a big regular season team. Obviously, you want to play well in the regular season, but they play their best when it comes to postseason play. That That's the biggest thing for me in Tampa. And, you know, the old expression is you can't be the king until you knock him off the throne. And I think. If Carolina comes out of the series, that's the best shot to do it. But I, I still like Tampa coming out of this division, regardless of if they play Nashville or if they play Carolina. But I agree, like home ice is going to be super important. As you said, it goes back and forth. And that's, you know, that was missing for about a year and a half. You know, some of these these teams are used to playing in front of either no fans or like limited fans. But now like with things opening up, you're getting like a full crowd right there. So it, it takes a little bit of time to adapt to it, you know, regardless of who you are. Um, but it's definitely a fun sight to see, especially as you said, if you're a casual fan, I love seeing all those crowds getting so energetic. Um, but overall, I just think the lightning are, they're too they're they might be too much for for Carolina, but I I think it could go seven. I think I think it if Carolina comes and beats Nashville, they could go seven. Yeah, it'll definitely be you know a, an interesting series to follow because again that Carolina team with you know Aho, you know, Victor Trocheck or I'm sorry, <laughs> Vincent Trocheck and you know even uh, Jordan Stahl who is you know has been in the league for quite some time you know, and you know, who's kind of holding down the back end for the Carolina, you know, hurricanes has been, you know, Dougie Hamilton, former Bruin, and even back to Tampa Bay, they have a star defenseman that has been in the league for quite some time. Victor had been an unbelievably large skilled, very great puck moving defenseman that takes a lot of space up um, similar to Char, I would say in his prime, but a little bit more skilled um, can operate on the power play and whatnot. So it'll be interesting to see Joe I think it's a fun series and I, I if I had to make a prediction which is obviously tough to do I'd like to see I think Tampa will come out of that bracket but I think it's going to go deep whether it's Nashville or Carolina I could easily see it going six or seven games and I think that home ice advantage for Carolina could help if they get pushed to a uh, game seven back in you know the Carolina barn yeah it's definitely going to be a lot of fun to watch out obviously we'll know exactly what it is in due time once the Carolina-Nashville series wraps up. 
Uh, and now we got to move to the North division. And I would probably say the biggest upset so far has been the fact that the Oilers got swept the Jets beating the oil and the Edmonton Oilers for nothing in the series, clinching it with a triple overtime winner in game four this past Monday. I mean, I was totally on board that the Oilers might've had a shot to go all the way. And then here come the Jets to pull off the upset. Would you call it probably the biggest upset of the playoffs so far? Yeah, I think Winnipeg's a very well-constructed team. Um, I think the big thing here, you know, and it's tough for the NHL because Connor McDavid is by far, hands down, the best player in the NHL. You know, I, I think he's head and shoulders above everybody. And to see him not make it to the second round is tough for a franchise that has been struggling um, between himself and Dreisaitl. You'd like to see them, you know, obviously make their way and, and move deeper into the playoffs, but I think it's tough because I think the way that the team's, you know, constructed, I, I, I think it's very tough to put a surrounding cast outside of those two phenom players. And I, I would say that was a huge upset, especially the way that McDavid plays. It almost looks like it's a scrimmage to him. It's so easy the way that he moves the puck and as a skater can just get away and, and have large bursts of speed and make scoring look very easy. Yeah, definitely the superstar of the league right now is Connor McDavid. And I just thought Winnipeg did a great job of really just shut, just playing shut down, playing shut down hockey. That's the biggest thing is, you know, maybe you can, you can let Connor McDavid do all this one man show thing, as you said, passing the puck and doing all that. But if you take away all of his other options right there, you're asking him to do it all himself. And we, we saw in this past series that McDavid can't do it by himself. And as you said, uh, the supporting cast just wasn't there for McDavid. And, you know, I was totally on board that if the Oilers get past this series, then maybe they could go into the final four, possibly get a Stanley cup. But, you know, Winnipeg just proved me wrong. They, as you said, they've got a well-constructed team. They knew exactly what they were doing and they knew they were going to shut down Connor McDavid and that offense, because this was a very high powered offense that the Oilers are running with. And the fact that they basically embarrassed them, took them out of four games. I understand game four was a triple overtime win, but still, if you're shutting them down like that, I mean, props to Winnipeg for pulling that off. And I think it says, it says a lot for the, um, you know, the Winnipeg defense and then specifically, you know, Connor Hellebuck, I think, you know, and honestly, former UMass Lowell Riverhawk. Um, who's had a you know, tremendous career coming out of you know, UMass Lowell. But you know, right now, he is at a, a 950 save percentage with one shutout you know, in these playoffs, you know, um, 1.6 goals against average. And, and to go against such a high-powered scoring team and to come out with statistics like that is just says a lot of how he's playing you know, goal. You know, it's just a um, tremendous effort. And I, I know that he's got a good supporting cast on defense helping him out there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we talked about it in the previous series about the Islanders, but we're really starting to see how important the defense is in this hockey game or we're in this postseason. We're not seeing, you know, these high scoring offenses being the high scoring offenses that they once were in the regular season. We're showing we're seeing how important having a good defense is in making a long postseason run. And we've seen that with teams in the past. And I think that's absolutely huge for a team like the Jets, who are so defensive heavy. And as you said, they've got great goaltending as well. 
that could help them make a make possibly a deep run if they could upset the Maple Leafs or the Canadians, which we'll get into in a little bit. Um, so the the Maple Leafs and the Canadians right now that series is three one. They've got game uh, game five tonight at seven in Toronto. Pat, I said from the beginning that Toronto, if they can get out of this series, then they could go into that final four because I think they have a great offense constructed with obviously their two stars. Do you think Toronto has the capability of making a deep run if they can beat Montreal? Yes. And, and, you know, you talk about, you know, the, the stars that Toronto has, you look at the roster, but I will say, you know, having a Toronto Maple Leaf Montreal Canadian postseason matchup is unbelievable. Talk about two passionate fan bases, um, you know, and it's just, if there's anything that this COVID structured playoff format is, is given us is the opportunity for a Canadian division, which has really kind of been fun to watch throughout the whole year. Um, so seeing a team like Toronto, built around, you know, Austin Matthews and and Mitch Marner, but their supporting cast of, uh, I would say, older veterans is great. You know, John Tavares, which, you know, was kind of affected by a hit earlier in the series and was out very scary. Um, You know, I would say unavoidable head contact, you know, head kind of snapped back. So I think the good news is I, I saw a video this morning that he was back skating and, you know, he was in the hospital, stayed the night and everything. So, you never obviously want to see a, an injury like that, but it, it is promising to see that he's skating. And I'll throw a name out there for you to interesting to watch Joe Thornton. Mm. You know, Wiley, Joe Thornton the Wiley is, veteran. Yes. And, you know, if you take a look at Joe's stats career wise, I mean, between playing in the Bruins and a very, very long stint on the West Coast with San Jose, you know, he's been in the league since 1997. I think he came in as an 18 year old and if you're talking about, I think his career goals right now, he's at 425, but he's got nearly 1,100 points. And the crazy thing are uh, 1,500 points, excuse me. Um, the amount of games he's played, I mean, he's close to breaking some very, very hard records to, you know, even being in that top echelon. You know, he's got over 1,680 games played which for an NHL career, a lot of wear and tear on the body to show that he's been not only on a team, but he's been contributing has been great to see. Yeah, that's definitely, it's definitely a feel good story. Um, There's usually one player or someone in the postseason where you're kind of rooting for them. And I think Joe Thornton is that guy, but not just Joe Thornton, but I mean, William Nylander, Alexander Kafoot, Jason Spezza, they have great pieces on offense. I mean, TJ Brody on defense, Morgan Riley on defense. I think this Toronto team is very well constructed uh, to go in a deep run. And, you know, they don't have to go through the Bruins. Exactly. For now, um, which is they've kind of had their number, but yeah, I think it'll be a tough game with Montreal. um, And obviously Winnipeg awaits a very, you know, heavy team, a lot of power forwards. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I will say, though, Toronto has very good goalie Jack Campbell, who's mm. going to be on the USA Olympic radar. Um, I believe he's a Michigan-born goaltender. Um, but again, in the past, Toronto's had some goalie issues. Um, 
I think Jack Campbell can be somebody who really solidifies that goalie position for a franchise that has been struggling to emerge successful in the playoffs. So yeah, it, it'll it be almost, interesting to see. Yeah. It almost feels like Toronto's getting like closer and closer and closer and they've fi- they're like so close to getting over the hump. And this could be the time, especially the way, as we talked about before, the season and the standings are set up. It gives Toronto a much better shot to qualify for that Stanley cup if they can get out of this division. Um, but we'll see what happens between the Canadians and the Maple Leafs. That'll wrap up the North division. And now the last division we have to get into is the West. We already know what it's going to be, or uh, we don't know actually what it's going to be. We know one team has already qualified. We know that the Colorado avalanche have uh, won their series over St. Louis, a clean sweep. I would, I will say over the St. Louis blues, they wrapped it up on Sunday and Pat all season long. This has been a team, arguably the best offense in the NHL. And they've got two of the most prominent uh, point scorers. You know, they were first and second in the regular season in McKinnon and Dracidi. Um, What do you see out of Colorado, you know, regardless of what happens in game seven between the, golden Knights and the wild. Do you think they can get out of this division? Yes. You know, I, I think McKinnon Landis you know, Nico Rantanen, I, I think that team, and then they have a very good puck moving defenseman. I would say that's the Boston equivalent of, you know, Charlie McAvoy, Kale Makar, which who is a UMass Amherst um, product as well. Uh, I think, you know, again, they're high scoring. They took, you know, um, a very, a very good team in St. Louis, you know, that had a lot of, of those, you know, former Stanley cup champions on there and, you know, they beat them for nothing, which I think says a lot. I think it was a statement to the league, like, Hey, you know, the avalanche aren't playing around. Um, and even on the other side too, you know, seeing the uh, opportunity for a Vegas, Minnesota, you know, um, series has been great. And that's going to game seven, which is going to be Friday night in Las Vegas. So if you're a fan of hockey and you're looking to go on a weekend trip with the boys, that Friday night Las Vegas game, that that arena is going to be crazy. It's for you know individuals who aren't familiar with the Las Vegas arena, compared to other NHL um, arenas, it's a little bit tighter. It actually has very old Boston Garden um, feel where it's it's built a little bit tighter up and um, you know the bowl's a little bit smaller, but it's very compact and it gets very loud. The atmosphere is great. And and just to think, Joe, the Las Vegas Knights started as an expansion team in 2017, 2018. And in their first expansion season, they made it to the Stanley Cup. So for a a fan, you know, for, as a fan in Las Vegas, you've been blessed right away. Right. You know, if you look at other franchises um, in other sports for expansion teams, it takes some time. But I think one of the benefits that the NHL does is the way that they've structured the expansion teams is they really have, they give them the opportunity to succeed right away, which is key because if you look at it, you want to get the franchise up and running as soon as possible, but you also want to make them competitive without draining the rest of the league. So to see what Las Vegas has done since 2017 and the fan base and just the arena and, you know, the buzz around Las Vegas, especially with the Raiders now being there, you know, there's talks that a baseball team might come. You know, I know that that is still a tough ticket to get. 
So it would definitely be a fun Friday night if you were in Las Vegas for game seven against Mini. Yeah, and I know you've been to Vegas in the past. And let me just say to Seattle, the Seattle Kraken, they've got some very high standards to meet if Vegas was the last team to do it. Seattle's got a way to go. But I think Vegas, you know, with this game seven, I I do like Vegas. As you said, I think the home ice is going to be very, very important. But they've got a great, well-structured team. I think the big difference, though, is going to be Marc-Andre Fleury in net for Vegas is – you know, he, he struggled in these last two games. You know, he let up three, and I was watching the end of that game last night, um, and they said, like, you know, he let up three goals, and he hasn't let up, like, more than two and maybe, like, I don't know, 15 postseason starts or something like that. Or um, he, he's let up three in his past two, and he hasn't given up more than two in his past 15 or talk, something like that. Talk about somebody – yeah, and, and you, you, Marc-Andre Fleury, he has a resume that speaks for itself. Um definitely a future hall of famer in my eyes. Um, you know, and, and obviously Robin Leonard is the backup there. I I'd like to see the Vegas team come out of here. I think they'll take game seven. Um, I think Minnesota's playing well, but I think Vegas is the better, st- better team. And between Mark stone and, you know, you throw in Max Pacioretty, um, another name to keep in mind for the future USA, um, Olympic team. Um, I think they're very well structured you know, good defensive core. And, and I think they're very tough to play at home, um, especially with a crowd rocking like that. So I think it'll be interesting, but between Minnesota and Las Vegas, I, I think it'll be a good series moving forward. Whoever wins gets to play Colorado, who is the hottest team in the NHL right now. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you think Colorado can beat either or, or does Vegas, if Vegas comes out of the series, can they upset Colorado or does Minnesota have a chance? Like, do you think Colorado is still the favorite to come out or do you I think, think you have to factor in the rest here? Um, you know, Colorado swept uh, the blues. So, you know, in four games and this game, you know, this series right now between Vegas and Minnesota is going seven. So you have a very well-rested team that's kind of prepping to play either a Minnesota or a Las Vegas. So I can see Colorado coming and grabbing the first two games there, but I still think it's going to be a tough series. And, I factor in if, if I'm in the playoffs, I think if you have certain players on your team um, and I think I'm going to throw a name out there too, Ryan Reeves. I think he is an extremely well power forward that dictates the tempo and the temperament of the game. Um, you know, he can control the ice. You know, I, I, I look at him and I see him very similar to um, Sean Thornton. And then also I'll throw a name out there. I, I think he's similar to Tom Wilson, but a little bit less, you know, scoring. I don't think he's on the type of line that Tom Wilson was on the Capitals, but he plays a heavy game. So if you're a Colorado defenseman or a Minnesota defenseman going down the ice, you know, catching a dumping pass, he's right behind you and he's hitting you with going hundred miles an hour, plays a very heavy game. I think he has an influence mentally too, because I can, you know, go right through you or if you want to dance and if you want to fight, you want to dictate the scrums after nobody wants to line up with him because he's an extremely powerful guy. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely going to be a lot of fun to see what the rest of this postseason does. But before I let you go, Pat, I got to give you the ultimate question right now. We've got about uh, six out of uh, the final eight in the NHL. I got to ask you right now at this moment, who is your favorite for the Stanley Cup, out of all the teams that are still available, haven't been eliminated, 
who would you say in your eyes is the favorite for the Stanley Cup? I think the way that Colorado's playing, you have to have them in the conversation. Same with the Bruins. You know, Boston taking the Capitals in five games. I think people thought that that may go six or seven, just the way that the Capitals are structured. You can't sleep in Tampa Bay. And I think Toronto's got the team that is to, you know, the way that the superstars are moving between Marner and, and Matthews, it's tough. So I'd love to see um, Colorado, Toronto, Tampa Bay, and Boston, because I, I think with those fan bases and the passion there, and then even, you know, you could potentially see a Vegas as well. I would say the Bruins are the favorite out of the whole group, very closely tied. I think Colorado might be actually a Vegas, better odds Vegas wise as a favorite, but I'll throw an, I'll throw a, a gambling thing at you right now. Right now, the Bruins are plus 500 to win the Stanley Cup. So a $100 bet wins you 500. And Tampa Bay has got some value at plus 600 as well coming out of that um, division as well. And then long shot, if you were looking to throw some money and make some money with a potential trip to Vegas, Joey, um, or a potential wedding gift to me, uh, <laughs> you could throw it on Winnipeg. They're plus 1,600 and they're already advanced to the second round. And I understand they're playing Toronto, but, you know, they just took out the Edmonton Oilers, high scoring, powerful team. And I think if people look at NHL as a whole and as a casual fan um, compared to other sports, the underdog has a much better puncher's chance than if you were to watch an NBA series and you have an eight seed versus a one seed. It's extremely tough. You know, the talent's there. Um, but with the NHL, I would say it's a little bit more of a level playing field. So if you're a casual fan and you're looking to throw some money on this or even I would like a, a tighter game. Some of these, you know, playoff hockey is really cool. I, I think the atmosphere, especially when it comes to overtime, you know, edge of your seat. So if you're a casual fan, I would definitely recommend watching some call uh, sorry, calls, watching some NHL hockey, just because it, 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 the buzz, the atmosphere, and the, the way that these guys play is they really give up everything, blocking shots, fighting guys, eight inches taller and 40 pounds heavier. Um, it's really cool. And I was actually, Joey, I have two questions for you. All right. Lay them on me. All right. If you were to pick a game atmosphere for these playoffs, where would you want to go watch a game as a fan? Ooh. I mean, I mean, you, the way you describe some of like, you know, the barn in Carolina, the arena in Vegas, that's great when it's at full capacity, even I'll throw Boston just at the TD garden and stuff like that. It's great. It's really, it's really tough, but I think, you know, you describe that Vegas arena like basically like a science the way like it's so tight it's similar to like what the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL do like you know their sports science where the crowd noise kind of like flutters in and it gets on the field that's similar to what Vegas does and if you saw Vegas during their Stanley Cup run the way that arena looked uh when they when they played in the Stanley Cup that place was rocking it was absolutely insane so I think at the moment I would say Vegas is probably the one atmosphere you definitely want to be a part of. It's kind of one of those bucket list sort of things where Vegas, you know, they finally got the team. They're energetic, you know, Vegas, you know, putting aside my homerism for the Bruins, because obviously who doesn't want to go to a Bruins playoff game if you're from Massachusetts, but hey, you I'll go from a pool party to the game and then come back and hit the craps table. So exactly like what's better than that. What's better than that in Las Vegas. So I think, I think for right now, I would say the, the T-Mobile arena in Vegas 
is my yeah and and it's an interesting point too because the canadian teams can't have fans in their game right now so i i for my personal one i'd love to go to the bell center in canada you know it's obviously a a, one of the i think it's the largest nhl arena um in the league but you know that anthem the passion the fan base the history there especially playing a team like toronto so it is tough not seeing them have fans of the game Um, obviously i'd love to go at a different year if they were to match up and play each other in the playoffs so um that's a good answer. And then while I have you, what's your favorite NHL jersey or logo? Oh, that's a good one. I mean, you can't go wrong with the black and gold for the Bruins, but uh, I mean, speaking a little bit from from a homer, I grew up just outside of Worcester and the Worcester Ice Cats then turned into the Worcester Sharks. And, you know, when you're a kid, if you see a team like the Sharks, it's like, oh, that's so cool. And then just like sort of that teal with the animated shark and stuff like that. So shark tank. Exactly. Like entering the shark tank. So, I mean, a little, a little bias for the, uh, the San Jose, for the San Jose uh, Jersey, but I will say Toronto's got like a nice basic Jersey, you know, just all blue, just a leaf. You know, I, I like, I like Toronto. I, I like Toronto's Jersey. It's nice and simple. And you know, it makes a statement. I like it. I like Toronto's jersey. See, yeah, and I'm old-fashioned, so my pick, obviously, is I, I like the Chicago Blackhawks red uniforms. Obviously, I, I think they're, you know, again, traditional, but playing in the red, you know, the logo and everything, I think it just sticks out. But um, I, I did want to say, Joey, thanks for, you know, letting me join you on the podcast. Obviously, I'm a consistent fan of Let Me Speak. Obviously, I'm for it. You know, it's, it's been great. It's been great to see the guests that have come on and where you've started. So thanks for having your future brother-in-law. I'm not sure if um, any other deals were made. You had to get me on if I was getting married <laughs> into the family, but well, it was, either, it was, either, to get it was either this or the old bet that we've had for years of just me running naked on the beach, you know, covered in sand or something like that. I it think, it, that I think you may have picked the better option. You know, the, the <laughs> option that may have avoided jail time, but I will say, Joe, I'm also a huge boxing fan. I think there's some huge heavyweight fights coming up that are going to be great. Um, Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua, um, you know, even throwing Deontay Wilders back into the mix now. So hopefully I can come back on at some point and touch on where the playoffs are if we get to the finals or even if there's some big heavyweight fights coming up. Yeah, definitely. It will definitely be a lot of fun to get you back on here. Patrick Sullivan, thank you very much for joining and previewing the NHL playoffs the rest of the way. Uh, We look forward to July 4th. We'll all definitely see you before then, but uh, thanks again for joining me on this episode. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And again, best of luck. Special thanks once again to Pat Sullivan for joining us and talking a little bit of NHL definitely had a blast talking with my future brother-in-law now hitting on to topic number three this was something I really wanted to talk about last week but obviously couldn't as I mentioned and that's the recent surge of no hitters in the MLB because we saw two no hitters on two consecutive days and so far we've seen six possibly seven no hitters and it sparked a lot of debate on whether This style in the MLB with this pitching dominance is a good thing or a bad thing. And we'll dive into it and give you my opinion in this week's segment of Hot Takes. 
So like I said, we have seen six no-hitters so far in the MLB. I should correct myself. Six official no-hitters. Should be seven if we count Madison Bumgarner's seven-inning no-hitter. But so far, we've seen Joe Musgrove from San Diego do it in April. We've seen Carlos Rodon from Chicago. John Means from Baltimore. Wade Miley from Cincinnati. Spencer Turnbull from Detroit. And Corey Kluber from the Yankees. Along with Madison Bumgarner, which I'm still petty about that. He has a no-hitter. And, of course, you have to go back with what the MLB did to the formation of the baseball. How it's basically a dead ball right now. And it's limiting offenses. When you look at the numbers right now, there are only five teams in the entire MLB who are hitting over 250. Over 250. For a batting average. Okay? And just barely for a few of them. Let's keep that in mind. But you also got to remember when you have this dead ball sort of thing, it's giving these pitchers more control. It's giving them more control on their breaking balls and their curveballs and stuff like that. And it's not to say that every single team, every single team can't hit the ball well. I mean, you look at the league leading Houston Astros are hitting 268, followed by the Red Sox at 260 and then you have the nationals the blue jays the white Sox, and the angels only six teams are hitting over 250 right now and the league worst are the mariners at 202 okay and let's just also keep that in mind seattle and cleveland have been no hit multiple times this year multiple times so that's really on just that offense not being able to play well but when you look at just, just really the way this this game has gone in recent years, it's turned into a you either hit home runs or you strike out. That's basically what it has turned into. And when you get this sort of dead ball effect back into it, it shows you how important pitching is in the MLB. And I'm someone who likes that sort of old school style. I love seeing pitchers perform well. You know, if you see a no-hitter or you see a perfect game or even a complete game, you know, that's just as exciting as seeing this kind of offense in the MLB. But that's just me. I'm an old school kind of person. You know, seeing the long ball and seeing all the home runs is nice. But we say it. Every single postseason, when it comes down to postseason play, the team that has the best pitching will win. And we see it year after year after year. You know, we saw it with the, with the Dodgers, obviously starting with Clayton Kershaw and Walker Bueller. Then the year before that, the Nationals, Steven Strasburg, Max Scherzer. The year before that, the Red Sox, Chris Sale, David Price. You know, you could go on and on and on and on and on about how important pitching is to a team's success. And we're just seeing how important it is now in the regular season as compared to the postseason. It's just as important in May as it will be in October. That's how important pitching is to this game. If you don't have good pitching, you will not go far. I mean, look at the teams that are succeeding right now. The Red Sox, yeah, they're struggling with pitching, but they're still hitting the ball well. They're getting okay pitching. You look at the Astros, same thing basically. 
the Nationals, the Blue Jays, all these teams that are hitting well all have somewhat good pitching. And really, to me, this is just all about the hitters. This is all about everyone who comes up to the to bat, and it is their need to adapt and get back to fundamental baseball. Fundamental baseball, and that is extra base hits, wall balls, sacrifice bunts, hitting against the shift. That's the biggest thing that these hitters have to do. This isn't all about the pitchers throwing no hitters because hitters can't hit. They just have to adapt. I mean, yeah, pitchers can make adjustments with release point or how high the leg kick or velocity and stuff like that. But as a hitter, you got to learn to hit against the shift. You got to learn to not go for a home run every time. You know, bloop singles and down the line fair balls for extra base hits. Okay, this is on the hitters. This is no this is nothing that the pitchers are doing well because pitching has just been the same as it's been. This is on the hitters. They have to learn to adapt, all right? It's no more you know, guys like Aaron Judge or Giancarlo Stanton where you're either hitting home runs or striking out. It's all about playing situational baseball. It's the scenarios where you have a guy on first, no outs, you sacrifice bunt to avoid the double play. Or you sacrifice bunt with a guy on second to get him to third. Or you hit a sacrifice fly. Or just small fundamental things like that. That is on the hitters. It's no more going after the long ball. It's all about on-base percentage and fundamental plays. I mean, this is what you're taught in like Little League and Babe Ruth Leagues and stuff like that. Where you're taught, okay, if you got a guy on first, you should bunt to try and get him into scoring position. Or if you're shown the shift, you just have to learn to hit to the opposite side and learn to hit in the hole and to the spaces where they have gaps. I mean, these hitters are in the major league baseball for a reason, okay? They're in this league for a reason. It's no longer just about the home run ball. It's about situational, fundamental baseball. That is all it is. This surge of no-hitters, yeah, it comes around every once in a while, I can go back to 2010 and 2011 where it felt like there were no hitters every month. Every month. So this is nothing new. This surge of no hitters, nothing new. This is just all about the hitters learning to adapt and no longer hit for the long ball, try to swing out of your shoes and hit home runs, either that or striking out. It's about getting extra base hits, It's about padding the RBI stats and getting the on-base percentage. That is all it is in the MLB. The surge of no-hitters is nothing to be concerned about. All right? These guys are in Major League Baseball for a reason. They'll find a way to overcome. But that's on the hitters. The pitchers, you just keep pitching. And if the no-hitter comes, then the no-hitter comes. Time to get local with our Let's Get Local 
segment of the week where we dive into all our Massachusetts team recording here from Swampscott, Massachusetts, and see just where our teams are headed and if we have a lot of faith. And we talked about the Bruins, obviously, with Pat Sullivan, so we'll just get into the other playoff team here in the city of Boston, and that is the Celtics. But it has not been pretty. Not been pretty at all. Down 2-0 to the Brooklyn Nets. They get to come home Friday night with almost a full TD Garden, which will absolutely be phenomenal to watch. And I'm just saying all of this with the precursor of they're not going to get out of this series at all. But just at least make it competitive. That's all I'm asking out of, out of the Celtics. It's just make it competitive. You know, I... I like what Fournier did, you know, taking exception to Durant and just sort of having that energy. Even if Fournier's totally in the wrong and he's completely wrong, maybe Durant did it on accident or something like that. But it just at least shows some kind of fight and not roll over and die versus this Brooklyn team. Just don't do that, all right? But if the Celtics want to take a game or two games, they're going to have to get more scoring from Kemba Walker, much more than... 17 and 15 points you know he's got to be that second scoring option and obviously the Celtics were hurt with Jason Tatum leaving after getting poked in the eye for game two but it he's at least got to show some kind of scoring semblance that's all he's got to do is just be that second option and he's got to get at least 25 to compliment Jason Tatum now we are hearing reports that Tatum will play which is very good if you're a Celtics team because he is your only hope right now in any kind of success in this series but the second leading scorer has to be Kemba Walker the second leading scorer behind Jason Tatum has to be Kemba Walker but not just from an individual standpoint from a team standpoint this perimeter defense has to get 10 times better I mean look at what happened in game two Joe Harris scored 25 points Joe Harris on a team that has Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving and James Harden Joe Harris was the guy that beat you, okay? And they allowed 17 threes in that game. 17 threes, all right? Perimeter defense is going to have to get 10 times better and not allow 17 threes and just really deny the three-point ball in general. But, of course, we're not... The series isn't the thing to talk about in recent days. Of course, the big story is Mr. Media Man himself, Kyrie Irving, saying that he hopes there's no subtle racism in the city of Boston when he plays there. Okay. <laughs> he is right and wrong about this. He's more wrong than right. The right thing that he does say is that, yes, there are racist moments in sports, but like Brad Stevens said, this has been handled not only in Boston, but in other cities, by security and other teams, respectively. You know, like I talked about in the NBA segment with the Russell Westbrook and the Trey Young scenario, that was handled. That was handled respectively. Both fans are banned from the arena. Like, there have been moments of racism, but they've been held with internally. This is not a racist scenario, though, okay? This is Kyrie Irving, a guy who said out of his own mouth he would stay and sign long-term with the Celtics only to jet and basically 
talk his way out of the city of Boston. And I think Kendrick Perkins put it perfectly that this isn't about subtle racism. This is about fans being unhappy with the way his tenure went as a member of the Boston Celtics, saying that he could have done better, okay? That's the reason why all the hate is going to come down on Kyrie Irving from the Celtics fan. Not because they're racist, but because they don't like Kyrie Irving and the way he's carried himself. That's that's all it is. That's all it is. But in switching from the Celtics to the Patriots, I was initially going to talk about the Patriots' chances at Julio Jones, but from what we heard yesterday on the podcast from Pat McAfee, legendary Patriots kicker Adam Vinatieri finally announced his retirement at 48 years old. The man who what I call the greatest kicker in the NFL has announced his retirement. He's finally lacing it, lacing it up at 48 years old. I mean, this talk about a Hall of Fame career. I mean, multiple times at the Pro Bowl, four Super Bowl rings, three with the Pats, one with the Colts, and the clutch moments that he has had. I mean, the kick in the snow versus the Raiders. The game winner versus the St. Louis Rams. The game winner versus the Carolina Panthers. I mean, this guy is the definition of clutch. I mean, for those first three Super Bowls, if Tom Brady was the most clutch, then Adam Vinatieri was number two right behind him. So I salute the career of Adam Vinatieri. I expect him to see, I expect him to be in Canton, Ohio with his own bus and already labeled as the greatest kicker in the NFL. But going back to what I just mentioned about Julio Jones, the reports came out earlier this week that Julio Jones Julio Jones requested a trade from the Atlanta Falcons, and of course, everyone's wondering, is Bill Belichick going to go after Julio Jones? Now, if it was me, I think if Bill Belichick is set on revenge and getting back to success this season, he will do whatever it takes to get Julio Jones on this team because this team lacks a number one wide receiver. They have great pass-catching targets with their two tight end format, Jonu Smith and Hunter Henry. And then obviously they signed Kendrick Bourne and they got Nelson Aguilar to go along with Jacoby Myers, Nikhil Harry. But there's no clear established number one wide receiver. Julio Jones fixes that already. And we've even heard from Jones himself that A, he always dreamed of playing with Cam Newton, if Newton is still the quarterback, and B, he wants to be traded to, if not the Patriots, then the Tennessee Titans, which, by the way, if Julio Jones and A.J. Brown are the two wide receivers for Tennessee, that's going to be a scary Titans team, if those two. But we're talking about the Patriots, and the Patriots should be locked in on getting Julio Jones. Now, Atlanta has asked for a first or second round pick. I think the Pats can make that sacrifice, but it does sound like it's going to have to be much more. They're going to have to unload the kitchen sink. Maybe, you know, we've heard the name about Stephon Gilmore. We don't know if he's going to stay or not. That's a name you might have to throw out there. You might have to throw in a young guy, possibly from the O-line or any kind of defender. Maybe one of those three-headed monsters at linebacker like Dante Hightower 
or Kyle Van Noy or Matthew Judon. I don't think they're going to give them up, but it sounds like that's kind of the load or relatively close to what it sounds like the Patriots would have to give up in order to get Julio Jones in a Patriots uni. And we have heard that a trade could happen next week. We don't know if it's for any kind of specific team. We don't know any kind of reports on that. But I guess we'll just have to keep our eyes and ears open come next week to find out if Julio Jones will no longer be an Atlanta Falcon. But a team also in Boston having some good success right now are the Red Sox. And while they had a good lead in the AL East, it's not there anymore. Because the Tampa Bay Rays, the New York Yankees, the Toronto Blue Jays are all hovering around in that AL East, all right? This is going to be a very historic race, depending on how things go. Right now, the Rays have a half-game lead over the Red Sox right now. The Red Sox have a full-game lead over the Yankees, who are in third place. And then between that and the Toronto Blue Jays, there's a a four-and-a-half-game difference between the Red Sox and and the Blue Jays. Now, the biggest thing that I've seen this past week for the Red Sox has been Danny Santana. He's finally made his debut. He came over in free agency from, I believe, Texas was his first team. And so so far, he could be a big factor for this team. I mean, two home runs in his first two games with the Red Sox during that series when they were in Philadelphia. I mean, that's very important. And I think it's just a lot of holes that the Red Sox have right now. I mean, we've seen so far that Kike Hernandez has been the leadoff guy. But he's struggled in the past week or two. Obviously, he had a stint on the IL. And that's where they brought Danny Santana in. And he was in the leadoff spot. And he has a great game. So, really, Alex Cora has just got to figure out what is his lineup going to look like. Because we know... Basically, what two through five looks like. We know that Alex Verdugo hits number two. We know that JD Martinez, Xander Bogots, Rafael Devers. That's basically the meat of the order right there. But then six through nine, we've seen a lot of shifting of Vasquez and Bobby Dahlbeck and Hunter Renfro and Marwin Gonzalez. Cora's got to find some stability with that offense, okay? He's got to figure out who's going to come after that meet. Is he going to trust Christian Vasquez to be that guy in the number six spot? And then where is Bobby Dahlbeck going to fall? If he heats up a little bit, do you move him up? Or do you keep him down low just to keep that power? That's going to be the biggest question. That and the leadoff spot for Alex Cora. He's got to figure out some stability, with that what's his everyday lineup going to be and then on the pitching standpoint obviously I talk over and over about how I don't have the confidence with this team really the one guy I'm looking at right now is Erod Eduardo Rodriguez just the way he's looked in past couple weeks is not he's not the same guy and I don't know if it's because he had COVID or anything like that but he's just he's lost his control a little bit and I think you know, you might need a few days off to, you know, rediscover it. But I mean, it takes one, it takes one good game to sort of find that mojo back for Rodriguez. So I do have confidence that he'll be able to find it and he'll be able to get it back. But I just don't know. He's not, he's not looking like the same guy he used to, you know, remember back in 2019 when he had a great year, you know, that's, that's the biggest thing for me with Rodriguez. Cause 
we have heard that Alex Cora is really hoping that Chris Sale returns. And if you have Nathan Evaldi, Evaldi's struggling a little bit. Nick Pavetta, he did struggle in the first part of that game last night against Atlanta, but he did settle down. But, I mean, Rodriguez right now, he's 5-3 and three with a 5.06 ERA. Rodriguez, if that's your number two starter right there, you really got to hope that he finds that control and he finds his location soon. Because otherwise, it's going to be a long season for this Red Sox pitching staff. Finally, to wrap up our show, we get ourselves a good gut laugh and look at our LOL moment of the week. And it started off as an LOL. Now it turns into a little bit of a beef, but it's definitely a lot of fun to watch. So this week's LOL moment of the week is going to Brooks Kepka. Now, it's not something that Kepka really said, but it's just... His actions that he did. So obviously this past weekend at the PGA Championship was absolutely a blast if you're a golf fan or a PGA fan. Because Phil Mickelson won his first major in a long time and became the oldest major winner in PGA history at age 50. When he won his sixth major title by winning the PGA Championship. And he won it over Brooks Kepka, who was at the time, in contention before Phil had a great run. Now, Kepka did have an interview afterwards, and there was a leaked video, which is the subject of the LOL moment, where he rolled his eyes at an appearing Bryson DeChambeau. DeChambeau came into the frame, and if you watch the video, Kepka knows it. He just takes a big sigh. He rolls his eyes. He might have cursed in there, but... It has been kind of fun if you're if you're asking me. It's kind of fun to look at this beef sort of build up between Kepka and Deshambo. And just after seeing that video, you can tell that Kepka just straight up doesn't like him. He doesn't like Deshambo at all. And part of me thinks that it could be a little bit of jealousy. It could be a little bit of jealousy coming from Burps Kepka because when you look at sort of this career rise of Brooks Kepka. I mean, he won back-to-back U.S. Opens. He's looking like the next star of the PGA after, you know, with Phil getting up there in age and then Tiger Woods unfortunately having his car wreck. You know, this Brooks could have kept been thinking, you know, I'm the next star of the PGA. And, you know, he wins back-to-back U.S. Opens. He contends for the PGA Championship. But then everyone can't stop talking about Bryson DeChambeau and when he builds all this muscle he can drive it you know 350 yards or something like that and that could be a little bit of jealousy you know Kepka saying hey I'm winning all the majors here all this guy can do is drive you gotta putt you gotta have all facets of your game and Bryson DeChambeau doesn't do that in Kepka's eyes so Really, that that's the biggest thing for Kepka is that it could just be a little bit of jealousy. 
But it just doesn't stop there at the PGA Championship because it was announced a few days ago that on July 6th, Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady are going to team up once again to take on the aforementioned Bryson DeChambeau and Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers in Capital One's The Match, the third annual The Match, or it might be the fourth annual. Yeah, it's the fourth annual because the first one was straight up Tiger versus Phil, and then the next one was uh, Brady and Phil versus Peyton Tiger, and then the one just recently involved Charles Barkley, and I forget exactly who else was on it. Steph Curry, I remember, was the other celebrity in that one. So this is the fourth annual, and Kepka might be a little jealous that he's not on there. You know, he's thinking, why Why did Phil get picked? Why can't it be me? And so he tweeted his apologies to Aaron Rodgers, basically saying, sorry, you got to be with Bryson DeChambeau, basically, once the announcement got made. And obviously there's some witty chatter back and forth you know Tom Brady posting the meme about Aaron Rodgers with that Brooks Kepka eye roll but Bryson DeChambeau with the comeback of all comebacks tweets out to Brooks Kepka, it's nice to be living rent free in your head and that is that is the ultimate comeback is when you're living rent free because it's absolutely true it's absolutely true I mean we saw it about a month ago from Rory McIlroy, he said himself that he tried to drive. He, he tried to improve his drive off the tee because Bryson DeChambeau was doing it. So the fact that DeChambeau is getting into these guys' heads and making him talk about it is not only fun to watch, but it just shows the truth and gives us the entertaining aspect of the PGA. The fact that we actually have a rivalry brewing between two guys who are capable, well capable, of pulling off a win in every tournament. Now, credit, DeChambeau hasn't won recently, but he's still in contention and Kepka's in contention. I am just hoping and praying that at some point in the near future, there's a final twosome where Kepka and DeChambeau get paired off because I would love... Love to see it because these two straight up don't like each other. Or maybe Kepka doesn't like DeChambeau more than the other way around. But I want to see these two in the same pairing. I really, really do. Because that is drama. When you have a rivalry like this, it's like when the Red Sox and Yankees play each other or the Lakers and Celtics play each other. There's that rivalry aspect that that's why you tune in to watch. You know, people would turn into tune in to watch Phil Mickelson obviously because he's becoming even a bigger superstar at age 50 than maybe he was when he was playing with Tiger but that wasn't even a rivalry because those two were friends and stuff like that they got along very nicely but Phil just being that entertaining guy having the shades on being part of the match I mean this is the PGA bringing in more viewers getting the entertainment aspect out of it so Brooks Kepka, yeah I know you don't like Bryson DeChambeau but getting caught on camera straight up saying that you don't like Bryson DeChambeau lands you in this week's LOL moment of the week
So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak. <laughs>